Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, so temper, temper number three. Are you all ready? I hope you all had a nice Valentine's Day. You know, somebody had said, I'm really glad we're not focusing on love like all the other churches this month. And I was like, oh, yeah, kind of forgot about that. We're talking about anger. Uh, Anybody want to switch gears, talk about love today? Good. I was hoping you would say that because we're not going to. So once again, just a reminder, you know, uh, when we preach in series, one week tends to build on the last, right? And this series is actually even more so that way. All these weeks are building on the last. So if you haven't heard the last couple, go back and listen to them. We we talk about these same sort of themes throughout the series. Uh, Last week, we really talked about forgiveness and what role faith plays in forgiveness, right, from the book of Joseph. The week before that, we drilled down into the right that we feel to be angry, the entitlement we feel to our anger from the book of Jonah. And so this week, I want to challenge even those two principles. Uh, What if God sees everything that you're doing, all of the good, all of the serving him, all of the sacrificing and striving and trying to be good and following him, and still bad things happen? What if we forgive everyone? And still bad things happen. What if we don't ever seem to get the happy ending that Joseph got? The book of Job asks these very questions. That's where we're going today. It's a very unique book, the book of Job. In the Old Testament, it's actually one of three books we call wisdom literature. And you really can't fully understand the big concepts of one without the other two. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are the other two. They each have their own message and meaning, and together they form what we call the wisdom literature. You almost can't study one without the other. I have a couple videos linked in the sermon notes if you want to study those ideas to get that full picture. But we're going to dive into just the book of Job today. And it's, a, it's also a very long book. It's a very dense book. It's sort of tough to get through. The the poetry just never seems to end, and the guys in this book don't know how to say anything short, like at all. They cannot seem to get to a point without a million words. So it's a little tough to get through, to be honest, but don't worry. I've picked out a couple of pieces today that we're going to study and really help us get through this story today. As most stories do, this one starts at the beginning. Job 1, verse 1. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. Would you say us or ooze? I've been struggling with this all week. It's an important question. The land of ooze, as a youth told me on Wednesday night. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in this entire area. This is Job. What we see in this story is a man who always obeys God and always gets rewarded for it. He's a very rich man, lots of kids, success everywhere he looks, but he's also a good man, a man of complete 
integrity, Job was pretty much as close to perfect as any human can get. And he lived a good life because of it. Meanwhile, we also get to see, it's a unique book because we not only get to see what's going on in the human characters down on earth, but we get to see what's going on in the heavens a little bit too. We get to peek behind the curtain and and see God's perspective. And so Job 1 goes on to say, One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. This is from the word of the Lord, right? A man of complete integrity. Can you imagine God saying that about you? I hope he can say that about me. I I don't know, a person of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him, after all, and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and I'll surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. And this helps me to remember sometimes, actually, that Satan's so powerful, he has to wait in line and ask permission from God, right? Like, we often trump him up to be this, I don't know, in every horror movie, it's like the worst kind of fear, right? But he has to wait in line and talk to God and get permission to do something here on earth. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically, So Satan left the Lord's presence. Anybody else notice God sort of recommends Job for this honor? What? Right, the story goes on. Job actually loses everything. His whole family, his herds, his property, his riches, he has nothing left but his health. And then we see another scene in heaven. Job 2 says, then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Again, Almost the same conversation. He is the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. And Satan isn't questioning Job's commitment. He's questioning his motive. Right? All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. If you didn't have anger problems before, I mean, I, my foot started tapping a little as I'm reading this. Like, God, what? What? How could you? Why would you? Job sat there, and you can just picture this guy. He used to have everything in the entire world. He used to be fat and happy, right? Like nothing was wrong in his life. And here he is, Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, notice God didn't take the wife. (laughs) Satan didn't take the wife, right? He knew it would be more torture with her than without. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. She was helpful in Satan's mission. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. 
Should we accept only good things from the hands of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. In fact, we see Job do two things that are incredibly right after this. We see him weep and worship. He weeps and he worships. Weeping is actually the right move here because God never called us to ignore reality. Faith does not deny reality. Faith believes God in spite of reality. We have this thing in Christian culture where we we can't say anything bad. I've gotten rebuked for just saying that things are not great right now. No, 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 you can't say that. Don't confess negatively. It's negative confession in Christian cultures. Don't do that. Right? Don't speak bad things into existence. I'm like, they're already existing. I'm not cursing something. I'm just saying, uh, honestly, it happened a lot when last year when my husband Aaron was going through his kidney failure and things were bad. I mean, he almost died a few times. There was, he was sick. It was not good, especially there towards the end before his transplant. And I, I would get asked, how's Aaron doing constantly? How's Aaron doing? He's, you know, not good. <laughs> no, 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 you can't say that. You asked. I <laughs> I'm not going to tell you he's good. He's not. Things are not good. Pray for him, right? Things are not good. Faith doesn't deny reality. It believes God in spite of reality. I also happen to know a God that is bigger, a God that's going to get us through this. I know that God can heal. He hasn't here, so I'm going to trust him anyway. Just me saying the right amount of words all strung together isn't going to twist God's arm and make him do something he doesn't want to do, right? It's not a magical incantation. It's just faith believing that God's going to get us through this one way or another. Feelings buried alive don't die. There's no such thing as an unexpressed emotion. We can weep when things are bad. We can have an honest conversation with God. Not everything is a curse or a faith statement. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Just sometimes reality. People talk about negative confession like like it's some sort of magical thing. I'm not manipulating God. I'm just saying it like it is. We make things too simple. Faith was never meant to be simple. God is just Right? We want to say God is just. God is the healer. That's what he does. And so if he's not healing, it must be me that's the problem. It's just not my, I don't have enough faith. I'm not saying all of the right things. This is the modern day version of what Job's going through in this story. Faith wasn't meant to be simple like that. We can weep when something's bad. We can express our honest feelings to God. But not only does Job weep, he also worships. The weeping actually led to worshiping. Weeping sets your eyes on one thing, but worship sets your eyes on another thing. You can't focus, you can't worry about God's greatness and the enormity of your struggle at the same time. It shifts your focus. Reality is still reality, but I know a God who's bigger. When he was worshiping, he was warring spiritual warfare. And so he does two things right here. He weeps and he worships, but then his friends show up. And if you know this story, his friends sort of get a bad 
wrap here. But verse 11 says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. If you're looking for baby names, I'm pretty sure those are available. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job. For they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Now again, these friends tend to get a bad rap for what happens next, but honestly, they showed up, right? They showed up up. I mean, they sat with him in grief, like not even his wife did. They didn't have to do that. They were present. They showed up. They sat with him in grief. They weeped while he weeped, and they listened. At least for a while, they listened before they spoke. That's more than most of us do when somebody's going through something tough. Right? While Aaron was going through his stuff, I got a lot of messages that were like, hey, I, I didn't want to bug you because I know everybody's probably messaging. And, and they were right. Everybody was messaging. But I often thought, like, what if they weren't, though? What if I'm assuming that about other people, that they're just overwhelmed with support and I would just be bothering them with mine? But what if everybody is thinking that? Right? Good friends just show up. They just show up and they listen and they sit with you. You don't have to have all the right words to say to support a friend in need. Just show up. But after seven days of silent grieving, Job begins to speak. He's processed a little more since that first day now, and he's got some thoughts. And his thoughts aren't all great. Job 3 verse 1 says, At last Job spoke and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased and the night I was conceived. Let that day be turned into darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it and let the darkness terrify it. He goes on like this for a while. I told you they can't say anything short. Whole chapter of just that, like cursing. Everything, the the day that he was born and everything. He says, I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. I have no rest, only trouble comes. He goes on and on. And then his friends begin to speak. Now, these three friends, they, they go back and forth. Job speaks, they speak. Job speaks, they speak. It's dense, poetic stuff. And again, can't say a darn thing short. So it's tough to get through. But what, what the friends are really saying is that God is just. We know that about him. He is just. He is, he is a just God. And so it must be you, Job, that's done something awful. There's just no way this could be happening if it's not for that. God wouldn't do that. He, he wouldn't allow it. He protects the good and brings punishment on the bad. It's just that simple. But is it? Is it? We have the perspective of of knowing what happened in heaven, right? I think that's why that's in there. To show us it's actually not that simple. Job maintains every time they go back and forth that he is innocent, that he's done nothing wrong that could possibly justify this. But he also maintains that God is 
just actually he's sort of all over the place with his emotions throughout this whole thing which honestly is totally understandable i've also been all over the place with my emotions and have a, had a lot less to deal with than poor job so <clears throat> i get it but god is just and i don't deserve this and so i demand a response from god he he demands angrily a response from god he must know how god can possibly justify this behavior you sound familiar to anyone else and god how could you how could you how could you let me go through this why would you allow this in my life where were you how could you do this to me job 32 i told you it was a lot of chapters we're skipping <laughs> 32 32 chapters of this back and forth stuff fourth stuff job 32 verse 2 says job's three friends finally refused to reply further to him because he kept insisting on his innocence they had nothing left to say they had said all the words nothing left to say nobody was changing their minds and then the fourth friend speaks and honestly i have gone over job a few i've studied it many times i've preached it a couple times like i thought i had job figured out but I preached an FE youth on Wednesday from the perspective of friendship. We were talking about love and, and the, the friendship type of love. And I thought that I would look at these friends and tell them all what not to do. I thought I'd get a great, these are bad friends example. And actually, I found them showing up. I found them listening. I found them sitting with him in grief. All good friendship tips, right? And then, Elihu shows up. The guy I hadn't really noticed before. But this fourth friend, Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzay of the clan of Ram, became angry. He was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right in punishing him. He also was angry that Job's three friends, at Job's three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer Job's arguments. Elihu had waited for the others to speak to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw they had no further reply, he spoke out angrily. Thank you, Lindsay. He makes a couple of solid points here, points that I had never seen before, but he's essentially calling him out on some assumptions that's leading him to this anger against God. Job 33, verse 12 and I just picked out a few of these chunks of scripture because, again, they go on for a while. But he says, but you are wrong, and I will show you why. For God is greater than any human being. So why are you bringing a charge against him? Why say he does not respond to people's complaints? For God speaks again and again, though people do not recognize it. He speaks in dreams and visions of the night when deep sleep falls on people as they lie in their beds. He whispers in their ears and terrifies them with warnings. He makes them turn from doing wrong. He keeps them from pride. He protects them from the grave, from crossing over the river of death. And he goes on. He's pointing out a few things. And Elihu, honestly, he reminds me a lot of my husband in this stuff because he's not mincing words. Right? He speaks the truth, but his, your feelings aren't his top priority. <laughs> my husband always speaks the truth. He's got the gift of exhortation. It's a spiritual gift where he can sort of rebuke you, but you feel loved at the same time. You know what I mean? That's Elihu here. He's calling him out on a few things. And first he's saying, you're assuming God isn't answering you? 
Maybe he has, and you weren't listening. Right? For God speaks again and again, though people do not recognize it. You assume God's not answering you. Maybe he has, but you weren't listening. I've told the story a few times of my calling. Like I was older in high school and I was desperate for God to just tell me what to do. Tell me where to go to school. Tell me what I'm going to do with my life. Like I was begging him to tell me. And I got this prophecy over my life that God was guiding me uniquely. The end. It's like, God, you can speak, obviously, but you're still not giving me direction here. Thanks a lot for nothing, you know? And I was annoyed about it. But now I think I can see that God had told me as a kid. I think I got called into ministry a few times around altars as a kid. But somewhere along the line, I stopped listening. If God had told me then, I probably would have run further, right? I wasn't listening well enough, so why would he tell me again? Maybe he has answered you, and you're not listening. Elihu goes on. Job 34 says, Must God tailor his justice to your demands? Tell Jay doesn't mince words. Must God tailor his justice to your demands, but you have rejected him. The choice is yours, not mine. Go ahead, share your wisdom with us. After all, bright people will tell me and wise people will hear me say, Job speaks out of ignorance. His words lack insight. Ouch. Job, you deserve the maximum penalty for the wicked way you have talked. For you have added rebellion to your sin. You show no respect and you may speak many angry words against God. Elihu's saying, you're assuming God's going against his own sense of justice when really you're putting your sense of justice on him. And we do this all the time. God, where were you? Like, like if you had just been looking at me when that happened, you could have prevented it. Where were you? If you had just been there, I know you would have done something about it. Right? The, the, there's this story about Lazarus in the New Testament. Jesus hears of his friend being very sick. They send for him. They tell him. Instead of going and rushing to Lazarus' side and healing him right then and there, he stays where he is for two days, and Lazarus dies. Finally, four days after that, he shows up. Both sisters, the first thing out of their mouths when they see Jesus is, Jesus, where were If you had only been here. Where were you? If you had only been here, this would not have happened. Jesus explained later that all this happened for God's glory. And so that the disciples would really believe. He he ended up raising Lazarus from the dead. And that was the one event that sort of catapulted Jesus' death sequence (laughs) after that. Like all of that, the death and resurrection may not have happened without the raising of Lazarus. There's a bigger plan here than just you and I. It was the beginning of the end for Jesus' ministry. We may not have had that story without this one. God, where were you? We're assuming God would change the past if he were only there. We're putting our sense of justice on to him. Elihu goes on. Job 35 says, Do you think it is right for you to claim I am righteous before God? 
Do you think it's right for you to call yourself righteous? For you also ask, what's in it for me? What's the use of living a righteous life? Look up into the sky and see the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does that affect God? Even if you sin again and again, what effect will it have on him? If you are good, is this some great gift to him? What could you possibly give him? No, your sin affects only people like yourself, and your good deeds also affect only humans. People cry out when they are oppressed, and when they cry out, God does not answer because of their pride. But is it wrong to say God doesn't listen? To say the Almighty isn't concerned? Job was assuming he was without sin, but by doing so, he was committing the sin of pride. It's like saying, I've never lied. Right? By saying that, I just lied. (laughs) You can't say you're without sin because you're not. And just by saying it, you're, you're being prideful. He's saying you're selfish in your righteousness because by doing it, You're claiming you're righteous. It it doesn't make sense. And on top of it, you're asking what you can get out of it. That's not righteousness. You can't be selfish in your righteousness. Joseph didn't take this attitude, right? He, as we looked at last week, he didn't take, he didn't look at his blessings for Joseph because of Joseph. He looked at his blessings as from God for people. It wasn't actually about him at all. You assume you're without sin, but by doing so, you're committing the sin of pride. Elihu doesn't stop there. Not at four. In fact, I I picked out six today, but it might be more than that if you read it really carefully. He keeps going. Job 35 verse 14 says, You say you can't see him, but he will bring justice if you only wait. You say he does not respond to sinners with anger, and it's not is not greatly concerned about wickedness, but you are talking nonsense, Job. You've spoken like a fool. You assume that because he hasn't answered so far, that he isn't going to. But really, you're just not being patient enough. You're just not waiting long enough. You say you can't see him, but he will bring justice if you only wait. We get angry in the waiting. Right? We get impatient in the waiting. Just because God hasn't answered yet doesn't mean he's not going to. Number five, Job 36, verse 13 says, For the godless are full of resentment. Even when he punishes them, they refuse to cry out to him for help. They die when they are young after wasting their lives in immoral living. But by means of their suffering, he rescues those who suffer. For he gets their attention through adversity. God is leading you away from danger, Job, to a place free from distress. He is setting your table with the best food, but you are obsessed with whether the godless will be judged. Don't worry, judgment and justice will be upheld. But watch out, or you may be seduced by wealth. Don't let yourself be bribed into sin. Be on guard. Turn your back from evil, for God sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil. Now, you assume suffering is a punishment, but what if it's a warning? You assume suffering is a punishment, but what if it's a warning? We are so short-sighted. And when we see the universe as 
only cause and effect, we're missing something. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? So when I do something, then something else happens. But we forget God doesn't exist within our time constraints. He can not only see the past, but the future as well. And maybe he sees something coming. And maybe he's using the accuser to train you now so that when it comes, you're ready. Stop putting God in a box. He's so much bigger than that. This is what the principle of karma teaches us, right? When we sow that, whatever we sow, we will also reap, right? If what I put into the world is what I get out of it, but it's a little too simple of an explanation for the universe that God created. Doesn't work like that, always. You assume suffering is a punishment, but what if it's a warning? Number six, Job 36 says, look, God is greater than we can understand. His years cannot be counted. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits. Who can understand the spreading of the clouds and the thunder that rolls forth from heaven? He goes on about the weather. What he's saying is you assume you should understand everything about God. But really, who could? Whoever could understand everything about God. You think you have it all figured out, Job. You don't. You don't have it all figured out. You have a very limited, small perspective. Look at the perspective of God. Do you understand how the clouds work and how they let rain down from heaven? How the the weather distills the rain and brings it back? How could you, even if you understood how it happens, could you control it? The further into understanding the Bible I get, the more I realize I don't understand. I just, I don't understand. I've studied this book, Job, multiple times. And I get all new revelations from it every time. This time especially, I spent all week thinking about this thing and just kept coming to me. I, I talked about it to anyone who would listen all week. I just kept getting these new revelations from it. How can I have studied it so hard in the past and study it again today, and I'm still getting new revelations. The Bible is living and active. If I can't even understand how that happens, I mean, this book that's really a collection of books written by over 40 authors over hundreds of years, and it doesn't contradict itself once, and it's still, even though it was written thousands of years ago, still speaks to me today, Candace, in 2020. How is that possible? I can't even understand that. How can I understand the God of the universe? I I think I have it all figured out. I just don't. (laughs) I just don't. I could never. We assume we should understand everything about God, that he should explain himself to us, that we are owed an explanation. But even if he explained it, could I understand it? God is the God of intentionality. When he speaks, it's because I'm meant to hear it. When he doesn't speak, it's because I'm not meant to hear it. There's a lot of assumptions here. Job makes a lot of assumptions in his anger about what has happened to him. But I'm pretty sure I've made every single one of them too. We all need that Elihu voice in our lives. 
Is somebody willing to speak the truth and see things from a different perspective to question us on the assumptions that we've been making? Someone willing to call us out when we're just being defensive and whiny and angry? Right? We, we get too busy trying to defend ourselves all of the time. that We can't see the egregious assumptions we're making about God. And because of those assumptions, we're angry. Angry at God. This is why baseline theology is actually pretty important because we build these assumptions on top of that theology. Build these assumptions on who we think God is. Maybe he's not that at all. God is the God of intentionality. His actions are never an end unto themselves. They're always a means to an end. I say this all the time, but when he does something, he's... There you go. Thank you, Sam. I'm a little worried about the rest of y'all. I do say it all the time. When he does something, he's... And when he does nothing, he's doing something. He's doing something. Even when it seems like he's doing nothing, this concept is easy to understand when God is acting in ways we prefer. It's more difficult when God is behaving in ways we do not understand. And I think we get... I think this is why we get a little bit of God's perspective in this book. Because without it, we might draw the wrong conclusions. We might oversimplify this. We might just conclude that Satan was attacking Job and he got double in the end, so it all works out, right? Or or that Job did actually do something, that his friends were right and he should have humbled himself and, and he should have listened. It's not that simple. And maybe we see God recommend someone for trouble, but he's actually recommending them for double. Someone who can handle the blessing. If you know Job's story, he got double back all the blessings in the end. But the book doesn't actually say that's why. It doesn't say he repented and so he got blessed. It doesn't give us those answers. It just happened. Maybe God wants to process our character in such a way that we'll be ready for the blessing when it comes. Maybe you're being tested not because you're weak, but because you're strong. Even when God allows Job to go go through something, he puts limitations on it. He never allows something he does not intend to use. You know, some people have trouble with the fact that even people are included in this list. Job lost his kids, ten of them. Sure, he got double the kids later, but what about the first ones, right? I thought God cared about human life, right? How can you just replace people? It doesn't work like that. But it also says in the beginning of the book of Job that Job's kids would frequently have wild parties that lasted for days. And afterward, Job would offer sacrifices for them, saying perhaps they sinned. Why weren't they offering those sacrifices? Can you offer sacrifices for somebody else? Can you repent for someone else's sin? Can you receive forgiveness for someone else's sin? Maybe God was giving Job a second chance to raise a family that didn't take their blessings for granted. Maybe those first kids would have ushered in an era of evil and selfishness that Job's legacy didn't deserve. Maybe God was giving him a second chance to raise a family that actually honored God. 
didn't take it for granted. After Elihu points out a few assumptions Job makes, we finally see God's response. Finally, I'm always tempted to say, (laughs) finally see God's response because when God does something, it's always at the right time. It may not be our time. In fact, it's almost never our time, but it's the right time. And I think there's something to the fact that God waited to speak to Job and address his issues until after he had worked it out with some friends. Until after he had been corrected by some friends, challenged a little by some friends. Sometimes Christians are against like therapy and mental health stuff. Isn't God enough, right? All you need is Jesus. All I need is you. There's actually t-shirts that say it's okay to love Jesus and have a therapist too, Sometimes Christians are against church too, by the way. I hear Christians all the time, I, it's just me and God, I don't need anybody else. I don't need people. What would I need people for? I'm good with God. Actually, we need people. We need people. To open up our ways of thinking, to help us renew our minds, to speak into that negative, toxic thought process you got going on in there. We need people. God answers Job after his friends do. And after Elihu opens up Job's mind to the possibility that he may be wrong about some things. I think that's significant. Jonah felt entitled to his anger, as we learned in the first week of Temper Temper, right? We didn't see him change. We don't know if he did. Joseph never had any anger in the first place that we know of, he, he forgave and he kept forgiving. We don't see him get angry. But Job, we see him have a change of heart. He was angry. And then he changes his heart in the end. He, he's an overall good guy making some wrong assumptions about God. And even overall good guys who are making wrong assumptions can get very off track when disaster strikes. In the end, God does answer Job. Job 38, verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I love God so much. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. He goes on like this for two chapters. God speaking, demanding a response from Job, challenging his ways of thinking and explaining his creation. Don't you think it's sort of an odd response? He's not addressing Job's suffering, not telling him why this happened and explaining the mysteries of Job's life. He's explaining the mysteries of life in general. He actually gets really into detail about specific animals like the donkey and the horse and, and the wild ox and the ostrich. And he challenges, challenges Job and he says, could you tame those animals? Could you put a ring in their nose and lead them away? 
Could you make the wild ox do something for you, plow a field? I don't think so. Job 40, verse 1, then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Come at me, bro. You're God's critic, but do you have the answers? And then Job replies to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. What else could possibly be the right response? (laughs) Right? I have nothing more to say. I'm going to shut my mouth now. Yeah, I'm just, I'm going to stop talking. I see it now. You're big. You're a lot bigger than I thought. I am so small. I misjudged my own importance. I misjudged it. Nothing more to say. But God doesn't stop there. In fact, I almost never see him throughout scripture just humble someone. Like he doesn't just ruin their lives and then leave them. He also redirects their thinking. And so in Job 40, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you're right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, then. Go ahead. All right, put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you for your own strength would save you. You hear the snarkiness in God? Challenging his sense of justice. And how dare you tell me I don't know how to run my world. Go ahead then, if you know. Try it for a day. See what happens. Right? He goes on to emphasize two of his creations. God goes on to emphasize two specific members of his creations. And in the word, it's called the behemoth and the leviathan. And there's some difference of opinion on who these guys actually are. They could be the hippo or the rhino or the crocodile, maybe. There could be mythological creatures. Some people think that God was just trying to make a point. I tend to think God's talking about real creatures here. The specifics that he pulls out from these creatures, I just think they have to be for real, he maybe the, you know, the crocodile, the hippo, maybe it's some extinct animal that existed back then, I don't know, but he's way too specific about what they are and what they can do, and he emphasizes the dangerous parts of them. He talks about their teeth and what they can do with their teeth and the strength and their, their size, how big they are and how they're not threatened by the, the floodwaters. And he just goes on to emphasize the, the untamable nature of them. How Job could never do anything to tame his dangerous creatures. And I think the meaning is clear. These are two symbols of disorder and danger in God's world. Items he created to be just who they are. They're not evil. God created them. They're not evil, but they're also not safe. The world is amazing and very good, right? God calls his creation 
good, but it's not perfect and it's not safe. God created order and beauty and rhythms. But this world is also wild and dangerous. It's not designed to prevent suffering. It will be someday. That's why we have the other 65 books of the Bible, right? We have the book of Revelation that says someday God is going to bring a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be designed to prevent suffering. But today is not that day. We don't live in a world designed to prevent suffering. We live in a world that's wild and dangerous, and that's exactly how God created it to be. Job, his three friends, tried to simplify the world. They wanted God to fit in their little box. They wanted things to be black and white, bad and good, simple to understand, easy to control, right? Nothing too complex that they would have to work to understand it. They wanted God to reward their good behavior, and anything bad must be punishment. If they can understand it in these terms, they can maybe control it, right? I've been calling this idea the the cult of comfort, Comfort was their God, not Jehovah God. Karma, essentially, right? Whatever you put into the world will come back to us, but it's an oversimplification. Yeah, sure, sometimes that happens. When you sow, you will reap. It's a principle of God's creation, but God can also see the future. What if the pain you're in right now is to develop you for the future and actually has nothing to do with your past? How does karma explain that? Right? Or, or what if God was speaking to you about in the past about what was coming and you just didn't prepare for it? What if God has a higher perspective than you? What if he knows a thing or two more than we do? And like we learned last week, we think we have control over whether the world mistreats us or not. We don't. We think we have control over whether we're successful or not. We don't. What we do have control over is whether God is with us or not. Lean into that. Even when it's hard, even when you've lost everything, even when it's your own actions and issues that have gotten you here, you don't understand it all. I don't. (laughs) Stop demanding easy answers from God. Even God didn't put himself in a box, by the way. Remember Moses at the burning bush, he said, who should I tell them that you are? What's your name? What name do I give them? What did God say? I am. I am who I am. He left the rest of that name open because I am the provider when you need provision. I am the healer when you need healed. I am your protector, right? He left it open so he could be who we need him to be because we can never understand all of who he is. I am. He's not in a box, though. Not a formula we can easily understand and control. And for a few days this week, a single question bothered me a lot. Would I be willing to lose everything that currently defines me if God asked me to? Would I be willing to lose everything I know now if I knew there was double on the other side? 
I think most of us would choose to stay comfortable. Even Christians, maybe especially Christians. I think we would choose to cling to our comfort, to serve the God of comfort rather than the God Jehovah. I think somewhere along the line, we've chosen to believe that God would never do anything that hurts this much, that he would never challenge me this much, that he wouldn't ask me to do something that's painful. He just wouldn't. We're not actually serving God then. We're serving comfort. What are we losing by clinging to our comfort? The cult of comfort is this this pseudo-Christian religion based around a God who rewards good behavior always. And so any bad things must be seen as a text from the enemy or a reason to be angry with God. But that's just simply not God. God is sovereign, not simple. He protects you. Yes, he keeps you. Yes, he upholds you with his righteous right hand. All of that is true and all of that is in the word, but sometimes he also tests you. Sometimes he breaks you. Sometimes he develops you. Sometimes he asks you to crawl up on the cross for the sake of others. Or go to a city of people you hate and preach repentance to them. Or endure slavery and prison and mistreatment so that you can save the world from starvation. Sometimes he asks you to get out of the boat when the waves are still raging. Sometimes he asks you to go out on the water without him and seems to walk right by you when you're struggling. And sometimes he asks you for your trust and calls you out on the absurdity of thinking you deserve an explanation from the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We don't deserve answers, but he does give them. He wants to have the honest conversation. He wants to talk to you about it. He didn't reprimand Job for the conversation, just the prideful way of thinking. He wanted to have that conversation. I think he sent Elihu actually to open up Job's mind, to get him ready for a conversation from God. He wants to have the conversation. Just don't make Job's mistake and assume you know what you're talking about. Job assumed the comfort he enjoyed was because of him. But in the end, he said, I see it now. You're sovereign. And I had no right to be angry. You took something I did nothing to deserve. Instead of asking God for nothing but safety and and protection, maybe we should be asking him for deeper revelations of who he is. And then when trials come, instead of getting angry, maybe we'll see them for what they are learning opportunities, teaching moments from the creator of heaven and earth who knows us better than we know ourselves. Father, today we humble our hearts before you. We ask you for guidance and direction. We even, we're ready to pray dangerous prayers like, God, convict me. Show me where I'm going wrong. Search my heart. Father, I pray that today as we consider our anger against you, as we consider the assumptions that we've been making, 
about who you are. And as you point out where we've gone wrong, I pray that we would also remember your son. That you sent Jesus into this world to set us free from our sin and our our selfish behaviors, the, the places that we've gone wrong. You sent him to set us free, to give us hope, so that honest conversations are incredibly easy to have with you. All we have to do is call in the name of Jesus. He paid the price for all of my sinful and selfish decisions and thoughts. He paid the price. I am already free. He's done all the hard work. All I have to do is call in his name. Accept his forgiveness in my life and choose to live his way from today forward. Father, we thank you and we praise you for every single response. Thank you for entering into those conversations with us, for wanting to have those conversations with us. Thank you that we can come before you and humble our hearts and and realize where we've gone wrong, but also that you love us so much. Thank you for not clobbering us over the head with, with guilt and shame. Just giving us conviction that pulls us to you. Father, show us your deep, unending, over-the-top, excellent love this week. Pull us to you. Help us humble our hearts in your presence. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. Amen. Freedom Valley, do you think, Pastor Candice? I gotta, I gotta ask you, don't, don't you feel blessed to have a pastor who's going to go to passages she's taught six, seven, eight times, and she's going to wrestle with them for an entire busy week where she's got other work to do? Trust me, I give her plenty of work. And then she's going to present it in a way that's not only powerful but challenging to your life? Don't you feel blessed by that? I got to tell you, I do. But, but how do I respond to that kind of, that kind of blessing? What, what's the appropriate response? Is it... Is it flowers? Is it, is it chocolates? Is it balance? I don't know. But what I think it is, put it into action. Put it into action. If, if somebody's going to pour out that much effort and energy and, and time, wouldn't the best way to, to, to thank them is to put that into practice, to challenge your own assumptions, to ask if I had to change everything. That's a question that, that Candace challenged me to, to ask myself. Who, who would you be if you weren't a youth pastor? What would, what would God do through you if you're willing to change everything for him? Can you imagine asking yourself that question? What would it look like if God took away everything so that he could give you an amazing thing? What, what would you do? I'm just telling you because God's got getting us ready for something, but it's going to require something. We got to be willing to give him and pour it out into others. And there's just so much I have to apply from this message. So I hope you spend the time. I hope you're going to a home group. I hope you're looking at your notes. I hope you're rewatching this later, listening to the podcast, whatever it takes for you to get what you need to get out of what has been poured out for you. We can do it, right? God's got a plan for us, right? 
He's, he's going to do something great. Let's pray to seal this word on our heart before we go forward from this place. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we have come to you so many times here in this service, as we have prayed over our baptisms, our new partners, over worship, over so many things, if you have poured out your blessings so richly to us, I thank you that you are always generous, that you are always loving, that you are always kind, but this is a challenging world filled with chaos, and we need you as our compass, as our guide, as our, as our way to move forward. So let us put you first and follow you over our own comfort, over our own ways, over our own identity, that you would be the reason and our way forward. Thank you for bringing us together as a church and bring us back together soon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Freedom Valley Church, thanks so much for celebrating with us. We love you guys and we'll see you next week.
The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, dry bones awaken. The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Not for a minute was I forsaken. The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, dry bones awaken. The Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place.
I'm a little nervous, but Father God, I know you have me here. Again, speak to every heart. You are mighty. You are awesome. We thank you. Jesus, lead us. In the name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. 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 Thank you for that word and that prayer.